EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Well, I got to tell you, it's a great time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Molero. And the guy sitting in the chair to my right, who's always with me, my faithful companion, Kelly Grayson. KG, how you doing? I am capital, man. I'm, I'm, I'm worn out, but it's a good worn out. Uh, having some productive days in EMT class and, and uh, getting some students engaged. So that's always charges my batteries. Well, I hear that happens when you get old, but, you know, so I wanted to share a little, <laughs> I wanted to share a little story with you. I think one of the claims to fame that I had growing up in New York City was my mom had a friend who was a big-time hairdresser, worked on Broadway, on mm-hmm. the plays, worked on a couple of uh, soap operas, but he worked on Saturday Night Live as a hairdresser. And what most people don't know is they do two shows. They do a 7 o'clock show, which is a full-dress rehearsal, then they do the 11.30 show. So anytime I wanted to take a girl out, I, I would say, do you want to go to Saturday Night Live? But the reason I bring that up wasn't to kind of impress you with that. There's a guest that has the most appearances, and that's Alec Baldwin. Well, our next guest is the Alec Baldwin of the Inside EMS podcast. He's been probably the guest the most, and he'll probably beat you over a parking spot as well, and that's Matt Zavosky. Matt, I want to thank you for joining once again on the Wait Inside a minute. EMS I'm, podcast. Kelly, I'm not sure how to take all of that. I mean, it's just like... I, I'm, I'm waiting for your for your Donald Trump impression, actually. Yeah, I don't know not, that I have gonna one. Happen. Yeah, I, I'll not do a Baldwin impression. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, 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 what about sweaty balls? That's right. That's that's, that's a classic. That's a classic Christmas thing. But Matt, thanks for joining <laughs> us again. Uh, you are the Alec Baldwin of Inside EMS. You've been on the most, and uh, we certainly appreciate you coming back. You just were here a couple of weeks ago, but now we got something else to talk about. We really want to kind of focus on this new ET3, which came out on Valentine's Day, and you know kind of talks about the next phase of uh, reimbursement for treat no transport alternative destinations and even some telemedicine component and i think i really wanted to kind of work you know this work into this podcast what this really means for our career field and is this the next step in ems reimbursement but but first off you know uh, being part of the national association of emergency medical technicians you guys were working uh, almost a year on this process before it was finally announced right well, and I think a year in earnest, but many of us in this profession have been working for decade to educate Congress and CMS and the other payers on this whole insanity of incentivizing us to spend people's money. And I think it took an alignment of the stars with some new leadership at CMMI uh, who came from a very different background than a lot of other CMMI leaders, but it also took... Uh, a real sort of understanding on the part of CMS and the administration that efforts to slow Medicare growth, slow Medicare spending 
has been marginally successful at best. And in order to be successful, we just have to try and keep testing new models. And I think those stars fully aligned. And, and really, it took about nine months from initial conversation that we can talk about in a minute to the announcement. And in CMS, the CMS world, that's a rocket sled. You don't see that yeah. happening typically that quickly. Yeah, this this is one of those overnight successes that, that took 15 years, you know, slowly chipping away at it and, and, and building building the momentum. And, and, you know, we had said early on on this podcast and elsewhere that mobile integrated health and, and community paramedicine wasn't going to be viable until you, you shifted the, the reimbursement model for it and found something other than a patchwork of, of grants and subsidies. Um, and then, you know, we got the ball rolling with some major insurers and, and, uh, uh, and getting CMS looking at at, uh, at programs that were kind of the test bed for this, like uh, Chris's announcement with uh, with uh, Anthem, Blue Cross, and Blue Shield, and, and several others, kind of got this ball rolling. And now we've got momentum, and I am pumped to see what uh, what comes next and 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 where this goes, provided we don't squander the opportunity. Ah, and Kelly, therein lies, I think, one of the things. And you know, we just are on the heels of EMS today, and. I can share with you some of the things that happened even during that week in Washington, D.C. But w- what we're trying to do, a number of us in the, in the profession, is to right-size expectations. Uh, everybody's using the term how exciting this is. And, and uh, we're saying that it's transformative and it's encouraging. But I'm not sure that we should be excited yet until there are some more questions answered and until we can really have a pretty robust understanding of what it's going to take to do what we've been telling CMS for 10 years we can do. Yeah, and I think that's going to be really important. And when we think about the metrics and when we think about outcomes and when we think about all these things now that we've been telling people they have to prepare for, well, if you're not prepared for them, you only have a short amount of time to do that. But specifically, Matt, everybody seems to think now that you know, CMS is now going to start paying for this service. And I want to break this down for a little bit of understanding. So applications are due to come out in the fall of 2019. In this first round or the first couple years, they're not taking everybody. They're only going to take like the, the best of the best, like the 40 best EMS systems that have an idea about how to make this innovation work. And they're going to kind of be the test bed before it kind of moves into that last three years. Isn't that right? It, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. And if you look at the way that CMS has done the rollout of a new economic model for any healthcare provider, it starts with a demonstration, although they're not really calling this a demonstration project, it's a model that is going to be voluntary. And they've done that for every other healthcare payment change that they've done. So an organization decides themselves if they want to be part of this alternate payment model or this APM. And then they go through an application process. But I think it would be important for everybody to realize on the podcast that this is really a two and a half phase project. So as you may recall from the announcements from CMS, and you know, we started working with CMS pretty earnestly in June um, of 18. So they contacted us and said, hey, we really want to learn more about these models that you guys are doing and the things that you've been talking about both as NEMT and also as MedStar. And over the course of six months, so from June until the beginning of, eight, of August, um, there were monthly and at sometimes biweekly conference calls, webinars, 
we gave them sample protocol, actually example protocols, not sample because we're using them, um, gave them protocols, training guidelines, quality assurance processes, metrics. Um, so as you know, MedStar is in several alternate payment models from several different payers. So we gave them the, the identified contract pages from those agreements to show how the metrics are being applied, et cetera, et cetera. And then CMS asked, okay, they, they got all this information related to uh, treat and refer, alternate destinations, community paramedicine, nurse triage. Then they asked the $64 million question. They said, would you be willing to put us in contact directly with the people who are signing checks for your program because we want to hear directly from them what they perceive the return on investment to be. And so we did that. And they, they had seven uh, phone interviews with seven different payers that are paying us for these different models. And then literally 60 days later, you get a phone call from the director of the CMMI and says, hey, come to DC on the 14th. We're going to make an announcement. So the two and a half phases are, first is this concept of alternate destination. So, you know, we've been saying, and, and Rand did a study that was published in Health Affairs um, that's been widely distributed now, and that if Medicare, if EMS providers had flexibility in where they brought Medicare recipients, that um, they could save the Medicare program, you know, $560 million a year. That was in 2012 numbers. Now it's probably got a different first digit. But um, so that's one component is, is, is being able to transport someone to urgent care, doctor's office, whatever. We'll go into more of that in a second. So that's sort of the first um, intervention, if you will. Second is this concept of treat and refer. And the treat and refer is something that REMSA, MedStar, Christian Hospital, a number of systems have been doing for different populations for a long time with great metrics, great outcomes, great patient experience. The, the difference between what a lot of those providers have been doing and what at least initially has been rolled out by CMS was this concept of calling back to a provider on the telephone uh, that provider being identified as a physician or a nurse practitioner, or PA perhaps, um, to consult that, yes, it's okay for this patient to be uh, left essentially at home with a referral to, to an alternate location later. The, that's not necessary, at least from what we understand currently, for the alternate destination. You don't need that online medical consult. And then third, the third or the half intervention that will be down the line a little bit is the whole nurse triage option. So, um, Chris, I think that will probably frame some of the discussions on this podcast about how to get ready. Matt, back to your admonition that we kind of right, need to right-size our enthusiasm for this. It's, yeah. um, well, you know, and, and I agree with you. It's uh, The ET3 is not going to be a panacea for, for everything that's wrong with EMS, and it's not going to be transformative unless we are able to actually seize and, and make use of this opportunity. Um right. The old, the old Chinese, uh, the Chinese ideograph for crisis is a combination of the symbols danger and opportunity, uh, and and both things are here. We have we have the danger yeah. of shooting ourselves in the foot and proving that we are not mature enough as a profession to handle responsibility, uh, but we also have a, a great deal of opportunity to to take our place at the at the table. Um, but what I'm interested in is is how would say MedStar, for example, in, in your role at MedStar, how would you go about implementing uh, these things and what are some of the obstacles you would overcome? For example, you know, it, it's all great to say uh, as a blanket statement, treat and refer would be would be phase two of this project. Many places are, are operating under a, a, a shortage of primary care physicians. And, and how are you going to, it's one thing to say, treat and refer you to your primary care physician. But if your primary care physician's first appointment opening is three weeks out, 
how do you overcome that? And, and I would assume that Fort Worth is going to be is in the same boat as, as much of the rest of the country in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the network infrastructure, the healthcare system infrastructure that is now really going to be tested. One of the measures that the IHI, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, has in many of the programs, and we actually adopted them in the Mobile Integrated Healthcare Measure Set, is what's called balancing measures. How does a new innovative care delivery model on this side of the equation impact the rest of the healthcare system on the other side of the equation? So do you have in your community resources to send Medicare patients to? Um, usually within 24 to 36 hours, not you know right now, but do you have a place to send them? Um, now, the good news is that most of these patients have a payer source, which means they may have likely a PCP. Um, but again, the capacity of that PCP might be such that you can't get them in unless you work with your local PCPs to come up with a different model that says, hey, can you give some priority? Or some hospitals have clinics, or um, you may have uh, entrepreneurial folks that have either urgent cares or primary care centers in the community that, you're going, that you might be able to refer patients to. But now, are you, EMS, getting in between the patient and their relationship with their PCP by referring them somewhere other than their PCP just due to an expediency of being able to get them into that alternate destination? How do you make sure that information gets back to the patient's patient-centered medical home to do follow-ups and, and the things that are necessary in order for these programs to be safe for those patients. Now, some would argue that the ER is not is an interruption of the relationship between the patient and their PCP. <laughs> but, um, you know, we just need to think through that. And, and let's also be honest here, folks. People on Medicare are on Medicare because they are either old, like Chris, or they have significant medical issues which makes them eligible for Medicare. That could be like Matt. a very difficult population. <laughs> hey, you weren't going to bring up my behavioral health issues. That could be a very difficult population to manage. Um, so again, as, as the organizations, Chris, back to your original question, as you do that organizational readiness assessment, it needs to be more than just the ability of your organization to change. What is your community like? Do you have the resources? Do you have relationships where you can send these patients to? Um, that has to be part of any community thinking about applying for this model. Now, again, we continue to work with CMS and CMMI on what should the application process look like. Should they get need to get letters of support and demonstrate that they've got resources to send people to and that their medical director is comfortable um, and is going to provide training for the providers to be able to know the it's okay to go to urgent care it's not okay to go to urgent care like we've done in our system and in remston a number of other locations um for for a lot of communities that's a pretty big leap and you're right the the organizations that have an established ability to do that already might be sort of the logical ones that cms might say okay we're going to approve your application for this alternate payment model um, but here's the reality is that if we've been navigating a lot of those patients already and let's say in our system, so we've been doing a readmission prevention program since 2011. It's going to be harder for us to show a reduction in Medicare spend because we've already worked with the partners in our community to lower the ER visit rate and the readmission rate yeah. in our community. So we're starting with a much tougher nut because our readmission rates are amongst the lowest in the nation. 
our ER visit rates for certain populations are very low. We you know, see a 50, 55% reduction in ER visits. Uh, now, we've not done that a lot with Medicare patients because, uh, and this is the other thing to consider, a lot of the hospitals like getting Medicare patients into the emergency room. So when you're having a conversation with your hospital CFO and you're doing a partnership with them to keep perhaps high utilizer or unfunded patients out of the hospital, now you start having conversations with them about keeping Medicare or commercially insured patients out of their emergency room. That is a much different conversation. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the things now that we start to think about and, you know, we think about return on investment. How are we going to prove that? And we think about alternative destinations. And, you know, we're going to need to have places that are open 24 hours for this alternative destinations. And, you know, you wow. mentioned nurse triage. And, you, I mean, there's so many different things that I think we can go down the rabbit hole to discuss when it comes to this new model. But I really want to kind of get to the bread and butter. And, and the folks that are listening who are sitting in the trucks and the leaders that are out there, I think what we have to... Uh, you know, give them is what does this mean for the individual organization? I mean, how do they, you know, a lot of people have gone kicking and screaming into this community paramedicine transition. Some people have been waiting for the very last minute. Some people haven't started this process at all. So right now we're looking at a two year time frame that if we're not involved in this process, we need to be able to begin the training and begin writing the policies and getting the protocols and developing the relationships so I guess the question that I want to ask you, Matt, is for the for the agencies that are out there, what is it going to take for them to prepare their paramedics for this transition? Number two is, how are they going to prepare the medical directors of that organization for this transition? Right. I mean, because one of the things that we think about, what's the one thing that keeps these, these uh, EMS medical directors up at night is all these AMAs. Well, at least they're <laughs> signing a piece of paper. Now we're going to be choosing a treatment protocol that we're going to treat them on scene and leave them. I got to think that's giving them more trepidation. I would yeah, hope you bet. I would hope that the medical directors would be a significant driving force in this change. Uh, well, and, they, just, and they have been. Yeah. You know, um, the National Association of EMS Physicians, um, with uh, under the leadership of Dr. Myers and Dr. Munjal and a bunch of folks, um, did do a lot of liaison activities with Dr. Prasant from New York and um, Adam Bowler and, and those folks. But um, so the, at least their association has expressed a very strong interest and let's be realistic, part of the concept of having a paramedic call a physician or an NP supervised by a physician is that under the current payment structure for CMS, that consult is billable. So now you've got a medical director for an EMS agency who has the capability of billing Medicare under this new alternate payment model for the consult to determine, yes, it's okay to, to refer this patient to their PCP later today, tomorrow, whatever it is. Um, oh. So there, there's some economics involved here. Now, you get into the whole discussion, Chris, back to your point about what does it take for an, for an organization. Some might say that the medical director for the EMS agency, who often is compensated somehow for serving in that role, if that medical director is now able to bill for her or his services that they're providing directly to patients that are being managed by the people they credential might be a financial conflict of interest. Oh, so, so how do we navigate that? That's interesting. Right. So it would be different if the medical director approved Teladoc to be the online consult 
arm's length, you know, independent oversight, sort of the things that we hear from NAMSP and others pretty regularly. But like I said, we're encouraged, but we need to work through a lot of those issues. And Chris, one thing that you said just a few moments ago, that at least in the announcement, you know, when we were all there at Station 13 at DC Fire and EMS, when they said that, as an example, one of the criteria would be that the alternate destination that you would be able to transport someone to has to be open 24-7. Well, I, I don't know about the rest of the country, but there are only two healthcare providers in Fort Worth who are available 24-7, and that is the EMS agency and the ER. Yeah, <laughs> so we, don't, we, don't, we don't have that, that sort of resources in, in my part of Louisiana either, not right. by a long shot. And the, the EMS agencies that have successfully demonstrated the ability to navigate patients through the healthcare system don't do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, because there aren't resources to send patients to. So for a lot of places, they can send patients to urgent care when the urgent care is available. If not, you go to the ER. They're going to send someone to the nurse in the, in, the, in the dispatch center like our place, but we only staff nurses 8 to 8, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. because after 8 p.m., there's nowhere to send patients to other than the ER. So, so why have a nurse in your triage center? Um, so again, we just we need to, to continually work with CMMI and CMS on sort of the ground truth about some of the things that they might be thinking about. Uh, we know that they're um, still interested. In fact, they came, a representative from CMMI came to EMS today uh, and attended some of the sessions that we were doing to learn more about how EMS operates. And we need to be working with them to give them that quote-unquote ground truth about, okay, this looks really good on paper, but here's what happens in the real world. And they've been very willing to do that, um, and I'm sure that they will as we continue to develop the application process, the credentialing, the measures, um, all of that. So in this new system, the, the paramedics, uh, the street-level providers are going to be a, a, have a, a hugely uh, expanded role as far responsibility-wise and being efficient gatekeepers to this system. So what do you anticipate will, will be the challenges in, in implementing that at the street provider level? Uh, is there going to be a need for a certification standard, uh, or is that something that, that uh, individual agencies can, can pursue on an ad hoc basis? Not everyone's, Not every system is built equally, and not every system has the same challenges. Well, what do you see that going, Matt? Uh, based on the conversations that we've had both with um, CMMI and even with um, some of the physicians that are part of this process, uh, clearly the, the medical director for the agency will credential people to be able to do this. And how they credential that you know, will be variable depending on the comfort level of the medical director, the system, the paramedics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Medicare will likely have to have some type of a verification process, again, letter from a medical director, what is this, the training program that you're going to use to make sure that it's safe for the patient and for the paramedics, et cetera. But Kelly, let's talk about something even more basic than that. From an organizational readiness perspective, for everybody listening on the podcast, raise your hand if you, as a paramedic, manager, leader, CFO, whatever in your organization, have your paramedics ask the billing questions if a patient's going to AMA or if they're not going to be transported. Hey, hey Matt, Probably this, very is, few. this is a podcast that you, we can't see their hands. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm it's a metaphorical. I don't know. I just I'm don't sorry. care. <laughs> it's metaphorical. So it doesn't happen. 
So when patients aren't transported, we don't collect billing information. Now, let's go to the next step. Chris, you and Kelly respond to a patient who slipped and fell and twisted their ankle. 70-year-old 70-year-old gentleman. Matt you ask them, very funny, hey, I can take you somewhere else if you have Medicare. Do you have Medicare? Yes, I do. Can you show me your card? Because remember, this is only going to apply to fee-for-service Medicare. So patients who are managed Medicare, they're in MCOs, this doesn't apply to them. So oh. let's say a patient says, yes, I have Medicare. Okay, what Medicare do you have? Well, I have United. Was United your MCO or is it your fiscal intermediary? So now, now the patient says, I don't know. So we don't even know if the patient at that point is going to be eligible for this new, dis- this new disposition. So the, pa- the patient whips out their Medicare card. How many paramedics can look at a Medicare card and know whether it's managed Medicare or if it's fee-for-service Medicare? Are they going to call the 1-800 number on the back and ask the insurance company? And you have to do all that even before you determine whether or not you can navigate this patient through the system. So that's one of the nuances that we need to work <laughs> with Medicare to kind of say, okay, so how would we identify those people? Right. It's really kind of tough. Give them, give them a gold Medicare card. Yeah, or something. I mean, but <laughs> it's Medicare gold. <laughs> you yeah. have the gold card, sir. Well, by all means, let's uh, let, let's do what we need to do. That's right. And I think that you know, th- th- it really is a is a conundrum when we start to think about that. This just isn't a slam dunk, and but I think that the position that we're in today. You know, we, we've kind of been given this EMS system that we have today. I mean, we've been trying to transition it for the past decade, you know, but whatever happened in the 70s that caused us to get to the point where we were getting the reimbursements that we were, at least we're in charge of what the next 50 years is going to look like. But th- that leads me to my next question, Matt. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the funding of this. And I know that we can't talk specifically about numbers because they haven't been created yet. But, you know, I, I'll take you back to a story that I tell. You and I were at a conference in uh, Arizona, and I was making the comments, and I had been saying this for a long time, that we need to end our dependency on CMS, and there are millions and millions of dollars out there to help fund these programs. Well, you, you, you know, uh, spoke up in that, and you said, Chris, I, I want to correct you a little bit. There's not millions and millions, but there's billions and billions of billions. dollars out there right. to fund it. But my point that I want to make is, you know, we send a $1,500 ambulance bill out the door. We get $427 from, you know, CMS. When we start to think about treating at home and we start to think about alternative destinations, when we start to think about telemedicine, I can't imagine that this is going to be a lot of money. Will there be the opportunity, in your opinion, to now start to get into that gain sharing that ACOs do? If an ACO you know, save CMS a million dollars, they get to split $500,000 with them. Is it this type of program now that we may be able to get into some of that bigger money of cost share than, you know, what we may get for an alternative transport destination, for an alternative (laughs) transport trip? It's easy for you to say. Right. Chris, let's not put the, we're in Texas, let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's first talk about, can we demonstrate to CMS an ROI for this new model. So let's run the numbers real quick. Back of the napkin math. So an average ER visit for Medicare costs them an expenditure of about 1,200, 1,300 bucks. 
simple treat street from the ER, blah, blah, blah. So let's just say it's 1300 bucks. They're going to pay the ambulance provider enough to incentivize them not to transport. So much like you did with Anthem. Anthem pays nearly, was it 75% of the average allowable ALS, you know, for right. that community. 75%. So Medicare has said that they're going to get, they're going to pay almost the same. And it wouldn't surprise me if it is exactly the same as they would have paid us to transport, to not transport. So now your Medicare is going to spend, call it 500 bucks on the ambulance. Now remember that the physician that you have to call to get permission not to transport, which is, is probably a good thing, is also going to bill. So now they're going to bill 100, 125 bucks or get paid 125 bucks, whatever it is, for that telemedicine consult. So now we're at 625. The patient's going to go somewhere downstream. So they're going to go to the clinic. They're going to go to their doctor. They're going to go to an urgent care. That's another 100 to 300 bucks. So we're at close to 1,000 or 1,100 for not transporting somebody to the hospital. They're avoiding, yes, the ER charge, but we're going to have to do a whole bunch of these very safe patient navigations to really demonstrate to CMS that we can save them money downstream by avoiding that ER visit if we had transported them. Yes, they have the ambulance transport fee regardless, um, but it, it just the metrics are going to be very, 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 very important for us to be able to demonstrate enough of an ROI that they're willing to go from you know, 30 or 40 agencies to 17,000. And, and to, to demonstrate that safety and, and efficacy, uh, we're going to have to operate from the presumption that, that um, transport is not the next step. Uh, and therefore, our, uh, our, our assessment and, and our history and, and the time we spend with the patient uh, assessing them and, and, and uh, learning about them, uh, we're going to wind up spending more time in that. Uh, so at what point do you reach a, a, a point of diminishing returns when you talk about time on task? Is it actually saving the, the ambulance uh, agency uh, any time uh, uh, and any money to not transport? Uh, right. And in, in an urban setting, in yeah. an urban setting, Kelly, that's tough to do. Now, if you're in a rural, in, let's just say rural Louisiana, just to pick an area, um, and your time on task is two hours, and your treat and refer time on task is only 45 minutes, then that could have a significant ROI. Yeah. But if you're, and even from the ROI perspective, I think that calculation is tough because the, the unit is still on duty. It's really an opportunity to respond to another call that you might not be able to, and that builds community trust, whatever the case might be. Sure. But if you're in an urban system like MedStar, where our average time on task is 67 minutes, but you're going to spend 45 minutes managing this patient and not transporting them, it's harder to show the ROI for us as an organization, especially considering the training that you may have to do for the paramedics to be able to make that sick, not sick to skip decision. Yeah, it certainly opens up a Pandora's box to find a can of worms, I'll tell you that. So Matt, it really I, does. I think that this is going to be my last question for you as we get up okay. there in time. You know, so when we think about all the issues that we kind of brought up here, you know, alternative destination, 24 hours and, you know, being able to connect with a doc and, you know, there's only going to be a, a certain amount of ambulance systems that are going to get the, the nod in the beginning. And I mean, what's really the silver lining here? I mean, is this really a, a change? Is this really something to get excited about? 
are we really in a position to just say it really doesn't give us a leg up at all? I mean, so where's the silver lining in this cloud? So let's go back to an ancient podcast that y'all had me on a couple of weeks ago uh, about education levels and value of EMS professionals. I think what this does is it finally acknowledges from our largest financial stakeholder that the way that paramedics and EMS systems have been reimbursed is, for lack of a better term, jacked up. And (laughs) I come back to what Adam Bowler said at the press conference when he first, he was getting out of a car in DC and an ambulance went by and somebody looked at him and said, did you know that EMS only gets paid if they take somebody to the emergency room? And he said, do what now? Because <laughs> that didn't make any sense to him. Um, but what this does is it now verifies, or at least the opportunity to verify, that the value that the field EMS providers, the EMTs and the paramedics that are out in the field, the value that they bring to the stakeholders that's writing the checks for us can be demonstrated in a different way than a per mileage charge. And that has huge opportunity. And you heard Secretary Azar and Administrator Verma and Adam Baylor say, we encourage other community payers, other insurance companies, Medicaid, commercial insurers to do what we are doing. So now consider all of your payers are paying you for the response assessment and referral instead of paying you for the transport Now, what we talked about with the degree discussion, we're bringing more value. We're coming into, you know, healthcare 2020, looking more like a European model, an Australian model, where the paramedics and the EMTs that are out in the field are exceptionally valued to the payer because they are doing patient navigation, not patient transport. That has the potential to to be huge. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, But hey, you've heard what Matt had to say. You've heard what Chris had to say. It's fairly obvious that ET3 has the potential to be transformative, not just for the EMS systems, but to the healthcare systems uh, in general uh, through the ripple effect, because the rest of of healthcare is going to have to be able to accommodate the changes that we make. But we'd like to hear what you think. What are the rocks and shoals that we haven't anticipated yet that we'll have to navigate? Uh, What are the obstacles we'll have to overcome? Where are the unforeseen opportunities of ET3? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself, co-host Chris Ceballero, and our special guest this week, the Alec Baldwin of Inside EMS, (laughs) Matt Tavaski. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you guys next week.